Welcome everyone. My name is Dr. Jean Alwing and I'm a professor of medicine and the director of the pulmonary hypertension program at the University of Cincinnati. We are all so glad you've all joined us. This is such an important topic. We're gonna to be talking about COVID-19 and coagulation. We're gonna begin with discussion of possible mechanisms, followed by a brief review of what's going on in research in this area. And then we're gonna to touch on some things that you may not have thought about before, the long-term impact of this on our patients. We'll end with questions and thank you so much for all of you who have sent questions in. We'll try to address those. And we're all looking forward to, to a very fun and informative discussion. So we have some great panelists, wonderful people who are here to share the information that we have about COVID-19 with you. And I'm gonna ask each person to introduce themselves and tell what um, institution they work with. Would you start, Dr. Sahai? Sure, thanks, Jean. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Sandeep Sahai, and I'm pulmonologist by training, and I'm um, one of the pulmonary vascular specialist, uh, diseases specialist here at Houston Methodist, uh, Houston, Texas. And uh, thanks for the chest uh, for giving me this opportunity. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Dr. Kay? There. Um, my name is Dana Kay. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician currently doing a uh, more training in pulmonary hypertension at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. And Dr. Balasubramanian? Oh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm a pulmonologist by training, and uh, I run the Pulmonary Vascular Center here at uh, sunny California, UCSF Fresno. Again, um, uh, glad to be a part of this discussion and uh, uh, looking forward to a, a robust uh, discussion ahead. And Dr. Raleigh? Hey, everyone. I'm Parth Raleigh. Uh, I'm a director of PORT uh, uh, program at Temple University Hospital, also the Pulmonary uh, physician and a lifelong PE learner. So uh, here I am. Excited to be with everyone. And again, thank you guys for being willing to be panelists and help to share this information. So we're going to start about looking at what we know about mechanisms. And Dr. Sahai, I'm gonna start with you. Can you tell us what we know at this point about the mechanism of thrombosis in COVID-19? Sure, thanks Jean for the question. Um, <clears throat> so uh, exact mechanism, how the virus increases this, you know, thrombosis is not very clear, but some of the studies which uh, uh, over the last one year have tried to attempted to highlight the, the mechanism. And one of the important thing which has come out of this whole summary of uh, you know, research in this area, that uh, as we know that uh, this virus attaches to the ACE2 receptors, which are expressed on the pulmonary vascular endothelium, and then from that it gets internalized. Now, there, is, there are two ways that one is a direct vascular injury, which it causes, and the other way is that it, it sort of that injury leads to a, a robust immune response, and it could be either complement mediated. Um, so there are, there are sort of like a balance between, uh, in, in, in a normal uh, pulmonary vasculature, there is a balance between the prothrombotic and the, uh, the, 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 anticoagulant activities and that gets imbalanced and 
And there is an inflammatory vascular injury, which induces thrombin formation. There is downregulation of uh, uh, fibrinolytic pathways. There is downregulation of anticoagulant pathway. And, and combination of that and complement mediated from which has been seen, C5B to 9, that also leads to the vascular injury. Uh, one of the important studies which came out early on in this pandemic was uh, from uh, published in Mayo Clinic. That was a very interesting study. They looked at the autopsy of uh, uh, COVID-19 patients' lung tissue and also H1N1 influenza lung tissue. And interestingly, they found that the people who unfortunately died with COVID-19 had pretty significant uh, involvement of the pulmonary vasculature and what they initially termed it as endothelitis. So there is definitely some different mechanism involved. And what most of the researchers believe is uh, ACE2 receptor mediated. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I just think this highlights the fact that we are so um, under to, underpowered for our understanding of this disease and every little bit we learn and talk about and discuss is helpful. And all of us here are pulmonary vascular people, but none of us are endothelial experts or experts in this specific field. So just so you know, we're all like you learning this as we go along. So Dana, I've got a good question for you. Tell me, a, tell me about how this affects the cardiopulmonary symptoms and systems and um, what diagnostic tests can we use to uh, assess patients with COVID-19 that we think have VTE in the clinical system, set, it's clinical setting, sorry. <laughs> sure. So there have been a number of studies that have evaluated changes in pulmonary physiology in the setting of COVID-19, but specifically talking about thrombosis and pulmonary vascular disease leading to changes in pul uh, pulmonary physiology. I think uh, one of the uh, more intriguing uh, studies that I've come across was an observational study done by Dr. Patel and colleagues uh, that was published in the Blue Journal this summer. And what they looked at was physiologic, morphologic, hematologic changes in patients with severe COVID-19. In this study, uh, they not only evaluated laboratory markers of thrombosis and coagulopathy, which not surprisingly showed uh, a hypercoagulable state in these patients, but in addition to a hypercoagulable state, they showed that uh, there was uh, evidence of widespread uh, pulmonary angiopathy and increased physiologic death space with the presence of dilated vessels and the peripheries of the lung uh, seen on the CT angiograms and also perfusion defects on dual energy CTs that they did. Um, a lot of the, um, all, basically all the patients that underwent dual energy CTs had perfusion defects and they were present in both dependent and non-dependent areas of the lung, which overall uh, suggested vascular dysregulation. Um, and if you want to go even beyond the pleura and talk about the myocardium a little bit, of course, uh, there's uh, a lot of evidence of acute myocardial injury that's seen in uh, COVID-19 patients. And in uh, autopsy series of patients in COVID-19, cardiomegaly and right ventricular dilation have been noted uh, without evidence of coronary artery thrombosis, but rather just scattered areas of myocyte necrosis um, due to uh, subacute pulmonary hypertension due to pulmonary in uh, intravascular coagulopathy and um, just leading to diffuse myocardial uh, stress and uh, ischemia. There have been studies that have used 
echocardiograms and have shown RV uh, impairment. And there's studies that have used uh, cardiac MRIs and they've shown more than 80% of patients with COVID have some kind of myocardial involvement as well, mostly inflammatory. So overall, there have been a lot of studies using different uh, modes, uh, different uh, diagnostic studies. And I think overall, they point to pulmonary angiopathy and thrombosis in patients with COVID-19. You think that can help us understand why they have so many uh, symptoms that we have such a hard time dealing with their hypoxia that changes minute to minute um, and their prolonged course? Do you think this could help us understand that a little bit better? Absolutely. So, you know, I think um, in patients that we see in the ICU or uh, on the floors, we might just do a non-contrasted CT uh, study and miss a lot of these other um, abnormalities such as perfusion defects and uh, perhaps uh, some of the differences that we might see if we did a CT angiogram. So, um, yes, I think kind of reviewing some of these studies, it leads you to pick uh, tests that will give you more information near patients with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. I think so too. It's a very challenging disease to manage. And I think the more we understand about this aspect, the more we can understand about their hypoxemia. So Dr. Raleigh, I have a question for you. Absolutely. How often are these people really having VTE? And is it really different than our other sick patients? Or is it just sick patients? And does it change from regions of the world? Oh, that's an absolutely fascinating question. And I'll try to shed some lights with uh, what we have learned from the recent times. Um, I think uh, what got, and I think one of the reasons for all of us are talking when we had a very early reports last year around this time, almost around this March or April time, where the first reports came out from the China and the European countries suggesting close to like as high as 50 to 60% of VTE events. Um, and um, in the patients with COVID-19. That got uh, the entire pulmonary vascular community gave a different perspective of COVID-19 related vascular diseases. So I think that's where it started. Uh, A very high incidence of uh, VT events. Um, If you combine with more an arterial event or a myocardial other other thrombotic events, the numbers were reported even higher as high as 85%, which was staggering and unprecedented numbers. Uh, there were studies uh, coming out from the French around the same time, around this time where they had the patients with COVID-19 ARDS, uh, patients and patients with COVID, without COVID-19 ARDS. And the incidence of PE was also three to four fold higher uh, in the real world timeline. We also noted similar trends uh, when we published our data from Temple. So yes, there was a lot of uh, PE uh, incidence-wise was reported compared to a non-COVID-19 related ICU patients. As the time moved forward, it, uh, a lot of studies got it published, and I think it was kind of very interesting to note uh, what was the denominator of the whole VT spectrum. Um, was it higher than the whole spectrum? And that's where things get a little murky because earlier reports included a lot of uh, a non-clinical relevant uh, venous thromboembolism where like a catheter-directed, I mean, catheter-associated thrombosis. Uh, some studies included isolated distal uh, DVTs, isolated subsegmental PEs, which we don't even anticoagulate based on current chest guidelines. So depending on what your denominator pool is, your VT incidence kind of varied drastically from a region to region. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have close to like uh, 50 studies which I have produced from different regions of the world where they have looked at the VTE incidents. And what was also unique, just to add a point that I think the entire community got caught by the VTE incidents and there was very little publication about bleeding incidents because having a VTE incidents um, always follows with our therapeutic intervention or at least a desire to do the therapeutic anticoagulation. And there is still... a uh, very limited data available on the bleeding event so uh, just to quote the most recent literature as it was published in chess last month where dr hemenes and the group um, performed uh, a very thorough well designed uh, systemic review tra- uh, systemic review and answered some of the questions that i was referring to is the vt incidence seeming icu versus non icu and the answer was that icu patients were much more high risk of vt compared to non icu is vt incidence same when you screen the patients prospectively versus you do a clinical decision based screening so when you do a prospective screening and that's what was done in lot of european countries yes the incidence of vt was higher but is it how we manage our clinical practice does it change clinical practice uh, third question which was very important that uh, the bleeding event so yes there was a higher incidence of a vt incidence but there was equally high incidence of bleeding events unacceptable high rate of bleeding events when patients were empirically anticoagulated or even put on a intermediate dosing regimen so i think when you put that into equipoise um, uh, i think uh, what we have learned so far is kind of back to square one and that in- includes myself from what we started doing last march to what we are doing today is i think um, we need more data we need more robust data um and last to your question is it the same across the world i think it's a part of that uh, systemic review we also did a subgroup analysis of geographic uh, locations from where there were those studies were published from so we divided into the european uh, studies which had like 62% of the studies included in our systemic review um were from europe uh, 20% was from the north america and the uh, uh, rest were from the asian and the other countries and it kind of the vt incidence reporting kind of followed how the covid spread across the globe so the highest incidence was in the european countries and the asian countries and the U- usa had the lowest incidence of uh, vte uh, compared to other centers and but ironically the bleeding incident was higher in uh us um us and canada countries compared to the european countries and we believe that because we know that there was a high incidence of vt we anticoagulated a lot of patients lot aggressively that means we screened less and that's why we had more bleeding but the less vt incidence so it's it's very interesting a, a lot of association but it kind of makes sense how we have practiced as clinicians no that's i think very powerful information the number of vte events and the impact of management on that. So, I think we can all agree this is a problem. COVID has effect on the uh, small vessels in our lungs and our vasculature in general, and we have more microvascular and macrovascular events. So, now we're going to move on to how we're trying to figure out how to manage this. So, we're going to talk about what's out there in research and we are not all inclusive so everyone in the audience we tried to pick what we felt would most impact your day-to-day management so bear with us and forgive us if we've uh, missed any important um, information please send us messages or questions in the chat and i will be happy to go through those as we 
um, end with questions. So again, moving on to research, and I'm going to talk with Dr. Sahai again. Sandeep, can you give us an update on some clinical trials that are ongoing that you really think are important regarding the role of anticoagulation in COVID-19? And yeah. then touch on a couple of things that have been recently published, like the INSPIRATION study. I think we learned a lot from that. And talk about what's going on with the rapid COAG trial. I, I want everyone to hear a little bit about that. So hard question. Sure. Uh, thanks, Jean. Uh, no, uh, yeah, this study, uh, let's talk a about the JAMA paper published um, recently, INSPIRATION study. Um, so the objective of the study was basically to assess the intermediate dose versus standard dose prophylactic anticoagulation, and uh, the primary endpoint was a composite of thrombotic events, uh, ECMO, oxygenation treatment, or mortality in COVID-19. This was done in um, IRAN with multicenter trial, 10 academic center. Um, I think the study design was pretty good. It was two by two factorial study design and randomization uh, was, and all the patients were treated with standard of care therapy. And uh, basically the randomized uh, patients into intermediate uh, dose uh, in oxaparin, which was one milligram per kilogram uh, body weight per day, and versus the standard prophylactic dose. Uh, the total, I think they enrolled like 600 patients. And, um, but interestingly, um, they did not find any difference in the primary endpoint, and, uh, uh, which was uh, composite of all the points which I mentioned earlier, like thrombosis, mortality, ECMO need at 30 days. They did not find um, any, any difference in that. Uh, that so, so basically, one of the lessons we learned from this study was that uh, intermediate dose uh, anticoagulation was not uh, any way better than a prophylactic dose anticoagulation in preventing you know, mortality or a need for ECMO or uh, thrombotic events. Um, although study had pretty high mortality in both arms, roughly close to 40%. Um, and also their standard of care treatment was a little different than what we use in the United States. So there are obviously certain things which uh, we cannot really apply to our standard of care. Uh, but I think uh, in, in principle, the concept uh, of the study uh, sort of highlights that probably doing uh, intermediate dose uh, anticoagulation is not uh, uh, going to really change outcome. The other one uh, study which you mentioned was rapid. It's an ongoing trial right now. Um, it's again, um, um, a basically in the patients, hospitalized patients with COVID-19, it's a pragmatic randomized control trial of therapeutic anticoagulation versus standard of care and see. So this is, a, this is an ongoing where they're using a low molecular weight heparin versus unfractionated. Uh, so it's basically in, in this, uh, there are three different arms. One obviously standard of care, other one is a, a low molecular weight heparin and then um, um, uh, unfractionated heparin. And uh, the physician or the clinician, it's an open label study, um, but uh, they, have a, they have been given this uh, it's a, because it's a pragmatic trial, so they've been given this sort of liberty to choose whatever based on the patient they want to use. Either they want to use low molecular weight heparin versus unfractionated. 
and they're using a little bit higher uh, normogram if you're using uh, unfractionated heparin. So this is an uh, ongoing and their uh, um, primary endpoint is, uh, uh, again, it's a composite op with an elevated D-dimer uh, with ICU admission. It, this study is not in the ICU patients. This is those who are hospitalized, but not in ICU and uh, need for non-invasive ventilation or invasive ventilation at 28 days. So we will certainly learn much more from this trial, uh, but as of now, we don't know uh, much information. So, so far we, we don't have anything uh, uh, which could favor doing high dose or uh, versus, you know, standard of care and anticoagulation. Very helpful. Uh, does the inspiration data drive your management? Uh, I think uh, that trial, considering their uh, background treatment, I think I cannot totally apply in my day-to-day -day care, uh, uh, but, but I think it does provide us very good information. Study is well done. Their study design is good. Uh, um, but I guess in there, and, and then, you know, when, when we're talking about composites of ECMO, I think that each institute, even in, even in the United States, each institute has its own criteria to implement ECMO and all these advanced care. So I'm not very familiar what they, they use in IREN. So I, uh, those things can affect the, um, you know, judgment or sure. drawing those conclusions into my practice. But, but certainly if we just look at, uh, scientifically, what they did, that was pretty decent to give the answer. Okay. In, in, so at least a, a launching pad, right? Yeah, it's certainly yeah. a launching pad, yeah. yeah. And now, Dr. K, yes. tell us some, some of the studies you think are helpful, and um, what do you think will guide us going forward, especially in our hospitalized patients? Sure. So, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, hospitalized patients and uh, anticoagulation in hospitalized patients. I think one of the first studies that surfaced was uh, a letter uh, in the Journal of American College of Cardiology uh, coming uh, uh, on a study uh, coming from our colleagues at Mount Sinai in New York. And they, they did an observational study on patients with COVID-19, more than 2,700 of them. And what they noted was in 28% of the, those patients who received therapeutic anticoagulation, um, they didn't really notice much of an inpatient mortality overall, but when they looked at mechanically ventilated uh, patients, there was a pretty drastic difference in mortality. 29% uh, uh, in those uh, that received therapeutic anticoagulation versus 62% in those that didn't receive therapeutic anticoagulation. So I think that was one of the first studies that kind of caught everybody's attention. There wasn't much of a difference in uh, bleeding events, but um, you know, uh, we have to say it, it was an observational study, no studies without its limitations. And of course, there was some survivor bias and some, um, you know, uh, missing data in terms of what anticoagulation agents were used and um, the duration of it and whether or not uh, those who didn't receive therapeutic anticoagulation received prophylactic anticoagulation. But nevertheless, I thought it was a very interesting study when it came out and it led to a lot of um, other questions and other studies. Uh, so one being the very exciting, exciting study that's coming soon, hopefully. Um, so the multi-platform randomized control trial 
that uh, is basically a collaboration between three trial platforms, the Active 4 the ATT&CK, and the REMAP CAP trials. And um, they're, uh, they're working together with similar protocols and similar primary and secondary outcomes um, to answer the question of whether therapeutic anticoagulation in patients uh, hospitalized with COVID-19 improves outcomes. And, um, you know, I think once that study, uh, the final results are not available yet, um, but just looking at the interim uh, results that have been made available, it, it is very exciting and it's very different compared to some of the other studies that have been done throughout this year on anticoagulation in hospitalized patients. Gina, if it's okay, I'm going to actually spend some time talking about this multi-platform randomized control trial. I would trial love that. that. I think our audience <laughs> would too. Yeah, because I think, you know, when the results become available, it'll be a study that everybody's going to be talking about and it can be potentially uh, management uh, changing. So what this study looked at was patients hospitalized for COVID and whether therapeutic anticoagulation, so low molecular weight heparin or uh, unfractionated heparin uh, at a therapeutic dose, whether it improves outcomes. And so what they looked at was organ support free days. Uh, they looked at the incidence of major hemorrhages, hit, mortality, uh, length of hospitalization, the events of thrombosis in uh, multiple organs, and also intubation. And the way they set out the study was uh, they stratified the patient population into either moderate state, and those were patients that were hospitalized but not um, ICU level. And of those uh, patients in the moderate state, they further uh, split them up into uh, based on their D-dimer level. So whether the D-dimer was very elevated above two times the upper limit of normal or whether it was elevated by below the two times uh, of the level of the upper normal. And what they... And then the other group that they uh, is the severe state group, which is the critically ill patients uh, in the ICU. And overall, the three platforms show that moderate state patients in both D-dimer levels uh, saw a benefit from the use of therapeutic anticoagulation. So um, their organ support uh, organ support uh, was uh, less frequent in those um, that uh, received the anticoagulation. Their mortality was a little less as well, 5.7 versus 7.7. And there wasn't much of a difference in terms of major bleeds. Now, looking at the uh, severe state patients, uh, those who are critically ill, they noted actually harm in using uh, when using therapeutic anticoagulation in that population, which is basically the opposite of what um, the study out of Mount Sinai showed. And they actually had to stop recruiting in, in that arm because there was an increase in mortality, 35% versus 32%. There wasn't much of a major difference in bleeding, um, but uh, I thought that was very interesting. And now the, the question that this really brings about is, well, what do you do with your patient that starts off on the floor and then gets upgraded to the ICU? Do you do anticoagulation or not? And you know, in that study, what they did is for those patients, uh, they continued anticoagulation if they were floor patients and then became critically ill. And in that, in that subset, they actually showed benefit with the use of therapeutic anticoagulation. But it makes you think, well, what if they hadn't continued it when they uh, became critically ill? Would the benefit in the moderate state group be even better? Mm -hmm. And so 
very exciting uh, study. We were all looking forward to the final report so we can really pick it apart and uh, kind of look at the details of their data, but um, we're all going to be uh, keeping an eye on that. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. And I think that was really powerful information. And all of this stuff is rolling in over this year. And it's so um, it's fascinating to keep up with, but also difficult. So thank you for that beautiful summary. So now I'm going to ask Dr. Rowley a very tricky question. How do we put what we know, what we just talked about? These people are at high risk for VTE. We have some but limited data. But how do we put that into an active guideline to use that's that's a living guideline because we keep getting more information. You're on mute. <laughs> that actually is a fantastic question. And I think it's the right question at the right time because um, I was fortunate enough to be a part of a CHEST uh, uh, Society COVID-19 VT specific guideline panel, uh, which was developed uh, in the middle of a COVID pandemic. Uh, so a lot of credit to the chess leadership and uh, pulling the team together. But I, I would take a moment to how to kind of um, how we all came together and then what are the things that we achieved actually changed a lot of practice. And I think the first, uh, there were 13 panelists across the globe um, and I was not, I was the least expert in that, but just an example about overall the VT, there were like 2,500 common publications among the authors. So um, I think I did that and I presented the jury and I still say that because that even though they are guidelines and they're expert opinions because there was lack of evidence, but I think there was a lot of stuff that we adapted from what we knew about a VTE uh, in a non COVID BT setting that, and we, I think the whole goal of the panel was what is the evidence that we can use from a non COVID BT setting and apply and recommend in a current guidelines. And what are the areas that we need more data to improve upon? Commonest burning question that we all get asked that should I change my D dimer based on uh, anticoagulation regimens? It's just an example. We all had that question but there was not even any data to suggest that D-dimer-based anticoagulation practice should change anywhere in the literature. So when panel had all these questions, we came up with 13 PICO questions and we could not fit into D-dimer into that category solely because it's never been studied even in a non-COVID VT setting. So, um, but then we came up with the 13 questions that where there was an evidence, where there was uh, some recommendation that we could make. And the panel came up with, uh, within a two months time, very robust way of a systemic review, uh, following very closely the PRISMA guidelines. Um, we came up with some form of evidence-based recommendation. Uh, if, you, if somebody reads the guidelines, I think one of the highlighting, uh, the way these guidelines were different from standard VT guidelines, because each problem at hand, we tried to divide the group, as I think all the panelists were referring to, into an ICU population and a non-ICU population. Because very early on, we realized, as our panelists have mentioned, that patients in the ICU group are a separate subset in terms of VT risk instead of um, bleeding risk versus a non-ICU uh, patient. So each guideline or each guideline statement has a separate recommendation for uh, ICU and a non-ICU patients. Uh, some of the highlighting things that um, we often get asked that I would like to bring, uh, I think that's worth mentioning is uh, one of the burning question is that uh, DOACs. Uh, can we use DOACs in a hospitalized patients with 
uh, VTE uh, in a COVID setting or not. And one of the things that I would like to bring it up is that DOAC studies uh, in a non-COVID ICU setting excluded the protease inhibitor drugs. So it, it excluded the patients uh, who were on antivirals. And because we know that the remdesivir and a lot of antiviral agents are the first line treatment to treat the diseases, and the panel felt very um, uncomfortable in recommending DOACs um, in the patients with VTE, with COVID-19, mm -hmm. uh, even in a prophylactic dose, even in a critically ill patients, um, and the patient, because everybody is going to be on a, some form of antiviral agents. Uh, remdesivir was particularly one of the exclusion criteria when the large randomized trials were done with the DOAX. So uh, I think one of the, I think the things that we brought out, no DOAX. Second, should we use the aspirin or antiplatelet agents or any other antiplatelet agents as a VT prophylaxis agents compared to the um, low molecular weight heparin? An answer to that is also no, because we know that as a primary preventive dosing, uh, antiplatelet agents do inferior performance compared to low anox or unfractionated heparin. We do not know whether adding an antiplatelet agent to low molecular weight heparin uh, is better than low molecular weight heparin alone, which is currently being studied in a randomized trial. So not as an isolated agent. Uh, third thing that we get asked is that should we do an intermediate or prophylactic dose regimen? Um, and I think panel kind of uh, had a little bit of uh, discussion, very heated discussion as uh, uh, as we all can have our opinion-based discussion. So what we end up doing that uh, for ICU patients, because we knew that uh, there is a higher risk of bleeding, we actually using a little stronger language on saying recommend against versus on the floor patient, we said we should consider. So if you read the guidelines, yes, it does say no, no for both of them. But if you look at the level of emphasis that we are putting in because of the inherent nature of the bleeding risk of the population, uh, the guidelines are actually recommending to do more studies. And finally, I, one of the points that I want to bring it up is a post-discharge prophylaxis. So the post-discharge prophylaxis, um, the panel felt very comfortable using a non-COVID uh, well-randomized uh, trials, um, uh, which is Mariner trial or Megalin trial, which had a post-hoc analysis looking at the role of DOAX in preventing of VT incidents uh, post-hospital um, post discharge. And um, it, was, uh, it was a futile point, meaning that yes, it does decrease slightly reduction in the VT incidence, but that was met with increased risk of bleeding. So unless we have identified a patient with a very low risk of bleeding and a very high risk of VTE uh, in general, um, panel is also recommending against the DOAQ. So I guess I'll stop there. These are just some highlighting features. I'm sure I gave you some enough information that encourages people to read the guidelines, but uh, I'm sure we'll come back and refer um, when we have more questions from audience. Well, I think I have a question from the audience and thank okay. you for uh, sharing. Uh, what kind of scoring system can we use to help guide us? Yeah, so I think uh, what uh, what was published in the Mariner trial was an improved score system. Mm -hmm. uh, um, else so yeah, and I think it basically identifies the patients who are low risk of bleeding, meaning the patients who don't have terminal cancer, who don't have a high risk of tendency to bleed. So I think identifying a very low risk patient is very important um, in determining uh, who should be considered. Um, Dr. Jimenez and the group uh, from REIT registry in their, in their um, uh, one of the COVID-VT studies, they, I think, brought up a very important point about what's uh, 
uh, fertility score on the patients because I think once the patients get discharged from the hospital, are those patients getting discharged to a nursing home uh, where they're not going to be moving? Are those patients are completely back to normal and they're going to be out in the community and walking around? Um, or those patients are still going to be on quarantine and limited in terms of mobility and they're mm -hmm. still on oxygen. So I think that is something which is new to COVID that mobility is a big factor. Mm -hmm. So I think improve score with in mind that what this patient is going to do once they go home for next 45 days, um, I think you may want to take into consideration this, deciding what kind of anticoagulation you want to send them out on. So I think I would add a mobility performance score uh, okay. on top of the improved score, particularly for COVID-19. No, that's great. And I think that's something also we've seen that's so different than our flu patients. These patients, when they're sick, they're sick for a long time and they have high risk of VTE. So we have to behave a little differently, at least from what we believe right now. Uh, so more to come though on that in terms of the active force studies uh, for outpatient. So now you guys haven't heard from Dr. Balasubramanian and you probably thought I was ignoring him, but I wasn't. I was saving some hard stuff for him. So we talked about high risk, we talked about what studies we thought were important to share, but I wanna ask him how he thinks this might affect the landscape of pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary vascular disease going forward. Thank you, I was just, uh, thank you, He Jean. was practicing, so. No, I was listening ready. intently, yeah. and I was kind of getting a little Thing. I, I was wondering whether I needed prophylaxis myself because I've been sitting around listening to all these eloquent conversations. I know, I know. I let, I, that's why I say they thought I was leaving you out, but I was keeping a special <laughs> question for you. <laughs> so, um, no, thank you. Thank you once again. And uh, sorry if I come across like a psychologist amongst all these fantastic factual discussions that have had there is, as you know, um, in fact, uh, thanks to Parth, uh, I, I, he shared a very nice phrase with me, which is COVID venous thromboembolism issues are almost what we know about it is almost certainly uncertain. Okay, so there is nothing we really know very well, and that part is factual. Okay, so, and uh, the other issue is the, um, interestingly, despite the plethora of studies that uh, uh, Sandeep, Dana, and Parth have gone through some of the salient ones, there is a, a, a relative deficiency of any long-term uh, kind of studies as to what actually is happening in the long-term with these patients as far as outcomes, whether COVID survivors or COVID-associated VTE uh, survivors, what is the true mortality? In fact, there is considerable controversy even with the true incidence and prevalence of um, uh, venous thromboembolism in this particular as uh, in this particular situation as everybody has alluded to there is a significant significant amount of variation now uh, when it comes to things that are unclear so one is the true incidence of venous thromboembolism between covid and non-covid patients and number two, the role of anticoagulation, therapeutic versus uh, prophylactic versus intermediate anticoagulation. And these, hopefully, we will know with time. Now, coming to the actual long-term complications, there's only one uh, study that is out there, and it's hot off the press from February. Um, this is from Spain, which really uh, talks about the 
uh, this is only, it's an observational study looking at about 100 patients. And they found that a lot of the, many of the documented cases of PE uh, occurred in the absence of DVT and are located in the more peripheral pulmonary arteries. And therefore they were kind of uh, uh, postulating the unique P phenotype characterized as uh, immunothrombosis. Now, in this particular study, the frequency of PE, 64%, was markedly higher than the previous uh, reported real-world uh, VTE studies, where it ranges from 25, uh, 25 to uh, 38%. The majority of complications, both whether it comes to uh, death or major bleeding, occurred in the first 30 days. And um, what they concluded was uh, ICU uh, admission, thrombocytopenia, and cancer are risk factors for poor prognosis. So with that, I can say that there is hardly any other data looking at long-term sequelae or long-term uh, influences on um, venous thromboembolism uh, due to COVID. And would love to see more studies, and I'm sure there are many more coming. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think this is something we've got to be mindful about. These people are going to come to see us, right? BJ, we're going to see them Absolutely. in clinic. Absolutely. I, I don't know if any of you guys have, but we have long COVID clinics now. Um, who on the panel has long COVID clinics at, at their institutions? So at least two of us now. Um, and by the end of this year, probably all of us will have that. So we've got to be thinking that sometimes you have an event, a venous thromboembolism, and you have long-term consequences. And it has to be on our list of things to look for when we see these people. So um, important information. So now we're going to change gears a little bit. Um, and I want to take a few minutes and ask Dr. Raleigh to talk to us about how the guidelines and the studies have changed our regimens of outpatient prophylactic um, anticoagulation and inpatient anticoagulation. What are we doing differently now than we were at the beginning of the pandemic? How have we changed? How are we actually adapting? And are we doing a good job or not? And how many of these okay. people outpatient are actually um, having VTEs? Do we know anything about those patients? So a lot of questions. Yes. yes. So I think I, I'll, I'll start with an outpatient world because I think uh, this is where I think I was referring earlier with our just guidelines that um, as a panelist, what we felt. So there are um, just a back, backtrack to that. There are 75 randomized controlled trial. I think uh, the um, uh, Dr. Bekedeli uh, published a review article where he actually showed how many randomized controlled trials, and we are talking about a good, real randomized controlled trials with COVID VTE. So there are 75 trials. I think Dana brought it up, the largest one, but there are 75 total looking at every single thing that we touched upon, and um, we'll have those answers hopefully soon. Uh, but I think going back to the, I think, outpatient VTE um, world and how do we optimize that? So I think um, there is only one paper that I'm aware of uh, came out of um, uh, UK Royal College, Imperial College of London, where they had 500 odd patients who were discharged with COVID and they followed up uh, up to 45 to 60 days, which is what a DOEX trial did, a randomized trial did. And their incidence of VTE uh, was not um, higher than what we know 
in a critic i mean in a medically ill patients were discharged which is somewhere close to 1.6 to 2% post discharge vte in a medically ill patients so that trial paralleled the incidence rate um, they also noticed that people who were sent out on doax had a higher uh, bleeding rate which is also close to 3.2% which is exactly was showed in mariner trial which was exactly mm-hmm. what's shown in a post hoc um megalian trial sorry those crazy yes megalian right thank you yeah. thank you um but yes exactly so fortunately that data matched a very huge randomized trial which are close to 12000 to 15000 patients so i think um, i feel i think out of everything that i feel confident i feel confident that we can stick to those uh, randomized trial and use the improved score and maybe adapt a little bit of um, mobility score to decide your anticoagulation same thing uh, will happen so the only difference is that if you decide to put them on anticoagulation patients who are getting out uh, in the community who are not on antivirals those would be a good candidate to go on the doax so that subgroup of the patient who are not on remdesivir anymore and we don't have an outpatient remdesivir yet uh, i think if you diagnose somebody as an outpatient vt with covid um those patient we can stick to our original guidelines of uh, doing an anticoagulation with doax for 3 months um, um so i think that is the only group where i feel confident or the panel just guidelines supported that you can consider to use doax in that group okay uh, so i hope that i answered one part of the question mm-hmm. um, it does. um and i'm going to go back to that uh, second part of the question is that how does our practices evolve and i think i'm re- going to refer back to what i think dana brought it up and i think one of the i think we had that question about d dimer how that d dimer drove us all crazy uh, and i think it certainly drove me crazy um so i'll have a little bit of uh, pers- perspective on that i think if you go back to the original literature published from tang they only showed that the d dimer is a marker of disease severity d dimer was associated with a higher mortality d dimer was associated with a higher dic and a bleeding events i think original studies never showed that d dimer should lead to the change in our anticoagulation practices i think because we are so familiar with the d dimer values i think it was us and us include starts with me that we all got excited to understand that uh, d dimer is higher or is changing and we need to adapt uh, a changing anticoagulation prophylaxis uh, i think the guidelines kind of brought it up a very evidence based discussion and ask us to take a step back and say please trust on what we already know meaning that don't use d dimers in an in hospital setting patients given that i think uh, we also i think if you talk i mean a learning from a hematologist uh, we also learned that d dimer has a direct uh inhibitory effect on fibrinogen also so that there, so d dimer may present a spectrum of the patients meaning that uh it could be a part of procoagulant state or it could be a part of consumptive coagulopathic state and i think that's where we are getting burned down that once the patients are in the icu setting or hospitalized 5 7 10 days they are going into that critical ill sick patients and doing inappropriate anticoagulation on them i think we have been burned more so i think i have i was not following the chess guidelines i think 6 months ago we all were in commotion but i think um, um i think uh, year from year after the initial covid i think i stick to the guidelines i find a reason not to anticoagulate and i find a reason to screen the patients clinically indicated screening uh, cta bedside echo focus i mean we all are ultrasound uh, savvy people nowadays so i think 
that's where the emphasis is focused on diagnosing and finding an appropriate injection to integrate the patient. So I'll stop there. I'll, I'll love to hear what our panelists think about that. But yeah, exactly. I was going to ask Dr. Sahai. So uh, Parth mentioned three months with a DOAC for an outpatient with VTE because you're not using remdesivir. Tell me how long you're managing these people that have a VTE and they're critically ill and they remain debilitated. And, you know, many of them remain positive with their um, COVID testing. Who knows what that means uh, exactly, but how long are you going to anticoagulate those folks? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Park. That was pretty detailed and thorough discussion. And thanks, Jean. So uh, one of the things which I have learned from these different society guidelines and everything is that um, the, 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 there is a central message and there is a common message, which is for post-discharge patients, if they are high risk for thrombosis and low risk for bleeding, you consider anticoagulation. Now, the question comes at like, what's the duration? Now, if suddenly someone has a documented thrombosis or PE or DVD while they're in the hospital, then obviously you would continue them as a standard protocol for three months like Parth mentioned. But the question is if, uh, you were doing the standard of care anticoagulation and there is no documented thrombosis, then, then how do you want to monitor and uh, them post-discharge? And I think that's where uh, most of the society guidelines sort of vary. And uh, then it goes to if the patients have risk factors for thrombosis or they're low risk for bleeding, then you may consider using anticoagulation. Like for example, ACCP chest guidelines actually does not recommend if the patient is discharged um, from the hospital and there is no documented, they don't suggest to use uh, anticoagulation. However, International Society of Thrombosis and uh, Hemostasis says, uh, their panel actually say, said, uh, consider 14 days, 50% of uh, uh, people voted to consider for 14 days and 20% said in high risk people. So there is like a, you can see there is a variation. Then there was a global COVID-19 thrombosis collaborative group, which suggested 45 days considering high risk population. Now the question is, how do you want to define those high risk people? So like Dr. Raleigh mentioned, um, high-risk people, those who are immobile, they're still having symptoms, they're persistent, probably those kind of people, they're aged, elderly, or elderly people, I mean, and the history of cancer. And uh, so um, so it's it's sort of very variable, and I think it's more of an individualized approach, but uh, they're certainly not recommending blanket anticoagulation for post. I think that's the central message I can learn. Um, I have one of the questions in the audience. Uh, someone is asking if you, Jean, won't mind me. Oh, please that. do. Please uh, do. It's asking about the thrombolytic therapy in COVID pulmonary diseases. And I think that's a very interesting question. Um, to be honest, uh, if you look at and Dr. Raleigh, who's been uh, author on the chess guidelines, they actually recommend against using it. And uh, they there is really no data to support that. Is that correct, Dr. Rawley? Yes, I think I think empiric use of anticoagulation because I think there's one trial going out and there was a case series published of three patients, I think of University of Colorado or some center that I don't recollect where out of three patients in a dire need, uh, physicians used TPA and one or two of them survived and one died. So that led to whole notion of this microthrombosis 
uh, as a like uh, last resort to treat TPA, which is completely lack of evidence based. TPA, just to remind everyone, is a ten thousand dollar drug. So you and it's a brutal drug if used incorrectly. Um, so yes, absolutely, panel was against that. And I think panel also answered is when would you use TPA? So I think the answer was simple: go back to the old chest guidelines and use for the patients with the VT with the massive PE or the ones who are at the verge of hemodynamic compromise. Uh, and also to uh, um, and don't only look at the RV, try to make sure it's an acute RV or a chronic RV and same stuff that you do in a non-COVID setting. But yes, uh, interesting enough, um, uh, there is a trial going on. You're looking at the tenecteplase, which is slightly different than ultiplase um, uh, at a multi-center site in the patients with submassive P in COVID-19 as an investigation trial. And I think that's what um, is only only recommended thing is that part, be a part of trial to study that particular drug because it's a push dose instead of an infusion dose, a quick action and a short half-life. It's the same drug that was used in the PYTHO trial. Um, uh, so I think that's one of the exciting trials with the COVID-19 VT on horizon. So not something we need to jump into. We really need to understand this. Our patients have bleeding risk and we can't just blanket give them lytics, not one cost and two efficacy and three risk. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's some important questions coming in. And I, I want to have Dr. K comment on um, a new press release and what she thinks about it. And then Dr. Balasubramanian is going to talk to us about CTED. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think the question is, should we change uh, our, our strategy of anticoagulation in non-ICU patients based on the trial I just mentioned, the uh, active four attack uh, remap cap trials that are coming out. And I think that's an excellent question. I'm personally someone who would like to see it peer reviewed and see it in black and white and look at the data myself, but I fully anticipate it to be uh, management changing. And, um, you know, I think as how, as medicine goes, a lot of people are going to start um, kind of uh, giving anticoagulation to non ICU patients with COVID and after a year or two, we're going to reevaluate the data uh, from there. And then, you know, either it's going to back up the original study or it's going to completely change things 180 degrees again. But, you know, for now, I would say I personally am going to wait uh, for the peer review finalized report, but I fully anticipate it to be um, a management changing for a lot of people. No, I agree. I agree. But I am looking forward to reading it in print. Yes. So, Dr. Dr. Balasu, Romanian. Tell us what you think about CTED, CTEF in this population. Yeah, th thank you for that question. Actually, I saw that question in the, in the question box as well. So unfortunately, um, it's a very reasonable and a very good question. Um, but again, this is only time will tell some of the answers. As we know from the prior study, uh, the PENGO study from um, 2004, which was published in NEJM, which estimated about a 3.8, 3.9% of uh, uh, CTEF in patients who have had pulmonary embolism in, uh, in two years. Then there is a much more recent study, 2018, where uh, from Switzerland, again, these are all non-COVID patients with pulmonary embolism, where they actually estimated a much lesser incidence of uh, less than 0.7% um, in these uh, patients. So there is considerable variation in the incidence of CTEF in the non-COVID population, in the general population, so to speak. 
So as far as COVID's um, influence on coagulopathy, which Sandeep and uh, others went through, um, it is going to be very interesting to see over time as to what is the impact of COVID-induced coagulopathy, whether it increases the uh, incidence of uh, CTEF over time. And uh, some uh, future longitudinal studies, I'm sure, and registries will throw more light on this particular aspect. Uh, as far as CTED, uh, absolutely uh, zero studies out there from what I know. Um, and especially when there is considerable um, uh, considerable uh, discussion and controversy around even defining CTED. As you know, uh, people talk about post-PE syndrome, uh, delayed resolution of uh, embolism, in-situ thrombosis, and uh, persistent shortness of breath. Uh, how do you define CTED uh, itself is uh, relatively uh, arguable. But anyway, uh, I'm sure we will get answers with time. I think this is going to be what we learn next. Huge amount of information is going to come to us because this is a big bolus of patients that have had PEs and maybe missed and, you know, maybe stayed at home sick. We don't know. So I think more to come on that topic. And Sandeep, can I ask you about using antiplatelets? Patients ask me about it. People ask the question. So tell me when and where and how we could use antiplatelet therapy, if ever, in our COVID patients. Actually, for uh, I think most uh, most of the time, as clinicians and physicians, we wonder though, especially those who stay at home and they're not getting admitted to the hospital. On those mild cases, should we be considering any antiplatelets and all? Actually, there is no evidence, and there is uh, uh, as uh, from the guidelines also, it says no, not to use any of the antiplatelets. And D dimer should not be used. Uh, as a, as Dr. Raleigh mentioned earlier, that it's more for more more like an inflammatory marker than just uh, indicating thrombosis. So, so the short answer is no. Um, uh, I'm not sure if there were any long-term trials or anything going on right now focused on this. Um, but but the answer is no. Okay. So so when my patients ask me, I have to tell them. No, we're, we just need to manage you symptomatically for your COVID unless you get sick and need to come to the hospital. Fair? <laughs> That's fair. Okay. Are there any other burning things you all want to share with our amazing audience that have asked so many great questions? Anything from the panel? Okay. I have been so impressed with you guys. You have shared so much information in such a succinct and efficient way. I really am proud to be part of the team. And I, I thank you guys for doing this with me. And thank you, our global audience, for being with us and asking such great questions. We appreciate all of your time and attention. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, uh, everyone around the world joining Today. Yeah, and some of us, uh, like Dr. Smart Physicians, like Dr. Sahai and myself, I'm not smart. We all are on Twitter, so please, <laughs> please join us. We and please keep coming with the questions. We'll make sure that uh, we get our panel's opinion and maybe try to answer some of the questions there we could not hear. So uh, please, uh, please uh, look out for us, and we're happy to connect again. Wish to uh, thank Chest and uh, the organizers for actually putting this uh, wonderful thing together because it was such a much it was a much needed uh, discussion. Uh, 
And I'm sure, I'll, I mean, I benefited a lot from this discussion myself. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you to Chess and everyone who participated participated in this discussion that uh, was much needed. <laughs> yes, I agree. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Chess. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.